Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. Ready? So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children, above, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, before we kind of walk through those things, I feel like uh, it'd be really good to just kind of explain what sanctification is. Uh, In short, uh, the word sanctification means to make holy. Now, that word's not actually in this passage, although it is a Bible word. You're going to come across it a number of times, but it's a reference to being made holy or to make something holy. Uh, When something is sanctified or being sanctified or when sanctification has taken place, something is being set apart, uh, being made distinct specifically in a biblical context, it is being set apart for the holiness of God, set apart by the holiness of God, being made holy according to the holiness of God. So this is the work that God is already doing in us, and he has promised to complete in us. Now we also, um, it's important for us to recognize that the work that God um, has started in us is complete. The salvation that God has has begun in you and I is complete from an eternal perspective. It's not as though God has started something and then we can mess it up somewhere in the midst of the process and he's going to then stop doing what he's doing and undo everything that he's already done. When we read God's word, we read about the the work, the complete work of God that he has accomplished in us. He talks about choosing us from before the foundation of the world. And he speaks of justifying us. When we look at Romans chapter 8, we see the past tense nature of all these things that God's done. Where he has justified us and he has set us apart for him. And he has determined to conform us to the image of Christ. And then we are looking forward to a day when we will be glorified. And when he describes that glorification that we look forward to in Scripture, he describes it as something that is past tense. So from the perspective of God, all of that has been secured for you and I by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the work of God is done. But we are commanded by God to pursue sanctification. I see it a little bit like this from a a simpler perspective. In the same sense that we are commanded to believe in Jesus, we are commanded to pursue holiness. And this is what I mean by that. We know that according to Scripture, we we, we know that belief is a gift from God. We can't believe unless the Lord gives us the ability to believe. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws. So when when we believe, that comes as an evidence that the power of God has drawn our hearts to Him and that belief that we have in Him is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, opening our eyes to the truth. He's used the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Word of God and the testimony of the saints to lead us to a knowledge of Him and to create a belief in our heart that is faith, and we express that by belief. And even if we did not know or have any realization that God was doing that kind of work in our lives, on the most basic level, we hear the command of Jesus Christ, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's what He tells us. 
And that means that we can come to know salvation in Christ by believing in, in Him, even if we don't fully know all the work that God is doing in that process. There are a lot of people, I believe, that come to salvation in Jesus not knowing a whole lot of theology, right? We don't know all the, all the details about justification and sanctification and glorification and, and all these big Bible words that a lot of people don't fully understand. Propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath. Children come to know salvation in Jesus Christ, not knowing all the details of those things. And it can be known, it can, we can know salvation without a full knowledge of those things simply because Jesus says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now there's some important, there's some important details about Jesus that we need to believe. We need to believe in the right Jesus there are a lot of false Jesuses being proclaimed, and belief in just any Jesus does not accomplish salvation. So he is, it is the truth about Jesus Christ that leads one to salvation. So in that same sense that we may not know the full work that God is doing in our hearts to create that belief, he just tells us to believe. In that same sense, we, we know that God is working out sanctification in our lives, which means by the power of the Holy Spirit in you and me, he is helping us obey God. And he is leading us on a daily basis to produce the fruit of salvation evidence that we are rooted in Christ and that we are blameless before the throne of God. The Holy Spirit of God is producing in me and you sanctification. He is sanctifying us. Even though we know that in this flesh, we will not be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus, until that day of glorification, or until that day that we leave this world and are united with Christ. We will not see that for some time. But in this process, we look forward to that fulfillment of sanctification. But we are beginning to see that work of Christ flowing out of us. Now, it comes as a fruit. But even if you're not fully aware that it's the Spirit of God that's producing all of that in you, we still have the most basic command to pursue it. It is a responsibility, it is an action, and it is a behavior that we find as a theme throughout Scripture um, for the believer. We are to pursue holiness. He tells us later um, uh, in Peter, uh, Peter, the, uh, I think it's 1 Peter, Peter tells the church to be holy because God is holy. And that is a command in Scripture. Now, in this passage in Philippians, I'm, I am coming to Philippians here. In this passage of Philippians, I believe that this concept of sanctification is important to kind of understand because this section uh, is full of a lot of instructions. Paul is looking at the Philippian church and he's giving them instructions about how they are to live this life, that they're to live on this earth. He says, even though we have this desire within us to leave and be with uh, to be with Christ, because that would be far better. But we also see the necessity of remaining on here in this world for the sake of the other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ that we can encourage in the faith, for the sake of all the lost people that could benefit from hearing the testimony of Christ in our lives and preaching of the gospel, for the sake of the work of God and glorifying himself through our lives. We see the need for us to remain on. But if we remain, we remain for the purpose of fruitful labor, right? That's what he says in verse chapter 1, verse 22. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So he says, uh, so he is, he's seeing this need for us to, he's instructing the church to pay attention to their physical lives on this earth, produce fruitful labor, and then he talks about their conduct in verse 27. Conduct yourself, this is chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's encouraging the church to be unified, specifically in this life that you live. You need the body of Christ. You need to be unified with the body of Christ. One spirit, one mind. 
consolation of love, fellowship in the spirit, affection and compassion, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Look at the example of Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death. So he says, look at your lives on this earth. And then we see this part in verse 12 that Bill kind of walked through last week where he says, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He's basically saying, hey, you obeyed the Lord while I was watching you. Continue obeying the Lord while I'm not watching you. And he says he's compelling them to live in obedience. And I believe all this kind of, this comes from the heart of sanctification. This knowledge that we have been changed on a heart level. And the Spirit of God is conforming you and I to the image of Christ um, and he's not only fully conformed our spirits to the image of Christ and unified us with Christ and perfected us in Christ Jesus and made us holy and blameless before the throne of God, but he is changing our behavior so that the physical lives that we live on this earth will more and more be conformed to the image of Christ, more and more be conformed to reflect the image of Christ. So when you see a lot of these instructions in the New Testament, these are pieces and parts of the work of sanctification that God is doing in our lives. When Paul has to bring to our attention something to focus on, it's because he knows we have a tendency as believers to sin in those areas, and we have need of being reminded to be uh, faithful to the Lord in those areas and to grow in holiness in those areas. So these, he is specifically focusing first and foremost on the church. Grow in holiness and your behavior with one another and before the Lord. And then he comes to verse 14. And he gives us this instruction, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I believe there's a little bit of a shift here where he begins to encourage you and I to focus not just on how it affects the church, not just how it affects you and I on an individual basis, but also how it affects the unbelieving world around us. So a um, couple more things before we really dive into those that I feel like just help us to understand this passage as we're walking through it. Um, remember in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that concept of being worthy is a citizenship concept. That word in Greek refers to citizenship. So as a good citizen of the kingdom of God, we ought to conduct our lives in a way that represents the kingdom of God, that adequately shows that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And then in verse 12, he tells us to, to obey the Lord and to continue obeying. God is at work at us. And then he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves or so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God. And this, again, I think, um, reflects some of that same concept in that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and we need to reflect that, that image in our way of life. So it calls us to look at our behavior and consider what it actually shows. Now, um, it is, uh, it's also a really good follow-up to uh, Paul's instruction to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, specifically amongst our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But then again, it's almost like he adds one more, do nothing with grumbling and disputing. Living for your own selfish ambitions will cause disunity and will disrupt your Christian family. But living with selfish ambition and grumbling and disputing will also affect your testimony as lights to the world. And he calls us to pay close attention to that. So let's take a look at a couple of these things. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, um, what that, that word grumbling literally means to voice a complaint. It means voicing a complaint. We have complaints. We have, um, we have uh, difficulties. We have days that don't go well. In fact, if you're 
If you're like me, you have things go on pretty much every day that are worthy of complaint or that you feel are worthy of complaint. Um, I struggle. In fact, when I was preparing this, I just really, the more I, I looked at it and read it, I just thought I should have asked Bill to preach this one because I'm not sure I'm, I'm worthy of preaching this passage about complaining. Um, and uh, I think uh, there's a tendency for us all to struggle with that. And that word disputing actually uh, is a word that means reasoning. Uh, it, it starts in the mind. Um, now, when I read the English word dispute, it means fight. That's what it means to me. But when I read, read the Greek and the word, the way it's been translated, it comes from a word reasoning and it starts in the mind and it's never used in a good way it's always used in a bad way it's always used in reference to something that takes place in your mind a conclusion that you have in your mind that causes doubt so it's always related to doubt and it's um, and it's thoughts that take place doubt that takes place in your heart and in your mind that then causes a disruption turns into a voiced complaint or it causes fighting and um, and trouble within your relationships with those people around you and more specifically I believe with God himself I think when Paul is telling us to do all things without grumbling or disputing after everything that he's already explained about the work of God and about the power of God and the joy of salvation that we have in Christ and the work that he is, uh, that he is producing in us, I think this is directly related to the fact that he's saying in all of your work, not just your daily grind, the things that you have to do every day, but specifically in this context, your obedience to the Lord. In all that you are doing in obedience to the Lord, whether it's fruitful labor, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, working amongst the body of Christ, the church, serving the church, serving your brothers and sisters in Christ, or, or faithfully doing your work um, for the sake of bringing glory and honor to God. What does Paul tell the Corinthians? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of the Lord. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever it is, do it all for the glory of the Lord. So whatever it is that you're doing, do it for the glory of the Lord. And I believe when he is telling us to do all things without grumbling or disputing, he's putting his finger on, on the fact that sometimes when things don't go our way or when things are not good in this world, we have a tendency to kick against that and fight and grumble and complain. And when I read this and began to meditate on it, I began to be convicted that my grumbling and my complaining is really me having a problem with the will of God. It's really me having a problem with God and what he's doing. And my grumbling and my disputing is really a, is a fight with him rather than those around me. Now, if you're my children in my house and you hear me, you know, grumbling and complaining and saying um, uncomprehensible things under my breath at seemingly the air or the walls or the doors in my house because things aren't going the way I want them to go. Um, it's, you know, it seemingly is not directed at anyone or maybe just, you know, something that I feel like I can throw. Um, but in reality, it is my flesh that is on display and my struggle with the work of God that he is accomplishing right there in my life. So there's a few things that he points out in this that I feel like help us to understand why Paul is saying this. And I'll go ahead and say, when I read this passage, to me it was really hard to, put my, to draw a connection between grumbling and disputing and some of these things that he's about to mention. Like, I wasn't sure why he picked grumbling and disputing. I felt like he could have said, don't do a bunch of other things. Why did he specifically pick grumbling and disputing? So let's just take a look at it for a few minutes and kind of walk through it. In verse 15, he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless or innocent children of God. And in most translations, it will say, so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Uh, or And uh, what that means is so that you will become. And I'm 
obvious question there is, you know, how does grumbling and disputing affect your blamelessness and innocence? And how can you become blameless and innocent by not grumbling and disputing? And I don't know for you, that raises a huge question for me. How can I become blameless and innocent at all? There's a whole lot of things that could be added to that list. Don't grumble and dispute that, that will help me to maybe not be blameless or to help me to be blameless and innocent. And I think it's really important to, again, remember that we're looking at this, this passage through the eyes of being a believer. We're Christians. So our salvation has already been accomplished in Christ. So before the throne of God, I am already blameless and innocent. In case you're not sure, um, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, he says this, to the saints, he's already identified the people that he's talking to, the saints, the Christians, believers, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Past tense, he's already poured out on the saints every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, meaning everything that God is going to give to you and I, it's already given to us. And then he says this, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. This work he has already accomplished in us. Now, if you're like me, you know that your behavior still is not always holy and blameless. So this is, there's a little bit of a difference between who we are in Christ and how we act. Who we are is holy and blameless before the throne of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I still act in such a way that I am not always blameless and innocent in my behavior. And so Paul is compelling the church to pursue. That's Again, that's the concept of sanctification, where we are to pursue that. We are to be holy. We are to pursue being blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Now, we already know that we are children of God, and we are above reproach because any accusation that comes against us to the throne of God by our enemy is met by Jesus Christ, who has already paid the price for everything that I could be accused of, which is a rich blessing, especially that the Lord told me that already so that I can live knowing that, because this is a difficult life to live in the flesh. So again, our identity is secure. But he compels us to live in such a way that it becomes evident that we are children of God and we live in such a way that we are above reproach. Now that phrase above reproach means to be above accusation. It means that when searched, someone can't find a good reason to give accusation against us of wrong. Of wrong, not, And I would clarify that by saying a biblical reason. A biblical reason. Because the world, since the beginning of the church, has come up with many reasons for finding wrong with Christians. And they're not all good reasons. So people want to, there are some things people will accuse us of and say that are wrong, but they are justifiable because we are, we are believers and this is the way the Lord's commanded us to live. Or they're just false accusations. And there's nothing you can do about that. But there should be no reason that someone could come to you and I and find and give and accuse us of violating the law of God because we are striving to obey the law of God. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, they're, I don't know. They're all my favorite. Anyways, um, Daniel. Actually, no, I can't say that. There's some that are just really hard to read. <laughs> Some are pretty scary. But anyways, Daniel chapter 6, great story about Daniel. You guys know this well. In fact, you've probably, if you've been in church for uh, uh, any length of time, especially if you were a child, you've probably heard this story um, numerous times and in many vacation Bible schools and Sunday school classes. But 
This story is about Daniel and his character. You know it pretty well. In verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. Now, notice how we're distinguishing. He was distinguished. He, that means to be set apart. He was noticeably different than the guys that he was working around. He distinguished himself and he possessed an extraordinary spirit. They didn't know how to describe what he was other than to just say it wasn't normal. The spirit that was in Daniel was different. It wasn't normal. It was extraordinary. But we know why Daniel appeared extraordinary. It was because of his love of God. It was because he lived differently than everybody else because he followed God's ways and not the world's ways. And it caused him to be distinguished. Um, and then it says, And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The commissioners and satraps began trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Now, I, will, I believe that Daniel was faithful to God. He was not a sinless man. Nobody in, uh, except for Christ was a sinless man. But throughout Scripture, you find God referring to some men and women as being blameless as living in such a way that they were blameless. And it's kind of a general reference, not meaning that they were perfect, not meaning that they were sinless, but it was a general reference to their behavior as people who were faithful and obedient to the will of God and the law of God. And it was noticeable. Now, I believe Daniel was one of those men. But these guys that were evaluating him were not judging him on the character of God. They were not judging him according to the law of God either. They were just judging him according to the ways of the king, the law of the kingdom, and the expectations of that house. And Daniel was living in such a way that he honored the king, and he obviously would not have achieved that position of notability and distinguished extraordinary spirit had he been vocally grumbling and complaining against the king all the time. What king is going to put a grumbler and a complainer and a murmurer right next to him in power? No, he's probably going to send them away to be killed because the king doesn't have to listen to that. Right? So Daniel obviously had a great amount of respect for the law of the land and a great amount of respect for this particular king. And these guys that had a problem with Daniel were trying to find a reason to get him removed from his position, so they were looking hard for some flaw in his character, some place where he broke the law, and they could not find an area where he had broken the law of the land. And they determined that the only way they were going to get him is if they could come up with a law that directly contradicted the law of his God because they knew that he was more faithful to the law of God than the law of Darius. So then they contrived this plan to make a law that would force Daniel to, dis to break the law of the land. And that's what they did, and that's why Daniel wound up in the lion's den. But this is a great example of what it means to be above reproach. Meaning when examined not only by the church the brothers and sisters in Christ, but also by the world around us, that no accusation can be found. Now, that's, 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 a, high, that's, a, that's a high standard because, one, it's difficult to, uh, to follow all the laws of the land. It's also difficult to follow all the laws of God. And we know we're not going to be perfect. And when examined and when searched, people are going to find flaws. Let's not pretend that we won't. And as believers, we should be really careful about scrutinizing one another. Um, but we should be very cautious about our own lives and look at this. First of all, we, we know that it is the will of God for us to be sanctified. 
We know it is the will of God for for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we know that God is working that out in us, so why fight against it? In fact, we ought to submit to the command to pursue it, to be holy, to be blameless and innocent according to the law of God, to strive to that end so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent and above reproach. So, now I think my version of the Bible kind of gives this indication that not grumbling and not disputing or um, voicing these doubts and um, issues that we have with the will of God and with the things that the Lord's called us to do in life is going to prove that we are blameless and innocent children of God. And I definitely think it will. I think that if we will choose to be cautious with our words and with our grumbling and with our disputes and with our doubts and our struggles, then uh, then. The way we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves will prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent. We will identify ourselves as children of God because it will begin to become evident that we are different. We will begin to distinguish ourselves as people who are children of God, not children of the world. Even the people of the world will begin to notice that. And he tells us, he tells us in verse 15, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So this is where I believe, this is why I believe that he's shifting this to a focus on the world around us, not just the church. It's very important that we pay attention to our conduct and our attitude towards the work that God's called us to because we're to be blameless and innocent in this world, but we are also lights to a crooked and perverse generation. Now that word, that word crooked means unscrupulous. I had to look that up and, uh, and it says without scruples. And so I had to look up scruples. All right. So, and it basically means no conscience. No conscience. A, uh, um, the unscrupulous or those without conscience. We live in a world of people without conscience, without knowledge of actual right and wrong. Do you believe that to be true? Do you feel like you can look out at the world around you and see that there's pretty much a lot of evidence of that? In fact, more and more so. Uh, you know, I've learned that you know, without restraint, you will see the extent of man's depravity it will naturally be put on display. Um, Some semblance of, uh, any semblance of morals without the power of God producing those in us is just simply a facade. Because there's not actually any conscience that's driving those morals. It might be fear of going to jail. It might be fear of losing something or some version of a consequence, but it's not because there's a conscience there. Because when you remove the threat of consequence, then in there, if there's no consci- conscience, then there's free reign for whatever your heart desires. The other word there is perverted, and that's used in a lot of ways in our culture, but it simply means to turn for cor- from correct behavior. That's what it means. It's really simple, to turn from correct behavior. We live in a world full of conscious, conscienceless people who have turned from correct behavior. Now let me pause there for a quick second because that implies there is such thing as correct behavior. There is such thing as correct behavior and wrong behavior, right and wrong. And for us to acknowledge this means that we are acknowledging right and wrong behavior. Here's an example. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives a little bit of a description of incorrect behavior or perverted behavior or... um, conscienceless behavior and starting in verse 28 and you could read the whole chapter and get into a lot of detail there but let's just read starting in verse 28 Romans 1 he says and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being fitted with all unrighteousness wickedness greed evil full of envy murder strife deceit malice They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, 
untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Shall we go on? You know, it's kind of, he, he lists, let me list as many things as I can think of at this point. And then he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that's the law of God, they know right and wrong. There's, there is right and wrong written on the heart of man, but although they knew it, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And Paul's pointing out that it's, it's not enough to just hate evil, but you give hearty approval to people that practice them um, is... Is participation in it, but I'll just go ahead and say too that I think if you were to try to argue in today's culture that there is such thing as right and wrong, and if you were to define some of those things as wrong, you are going to be accused of wrong as a believer. You're going to be accused of a lot of really strange things. Like you're just afraid of people who are different than you. You have a phobia. You're whatever phobic because you identified that something is wrong in the eyes of God. Or even really more strange is you might be accused of being racist, which is a weird connection, but it is happening. If you identify that a certain behavior is wrong, then you might be racist. Or you might have some form of prejudice or you hate people who are different than you. These are the kinds of accusations that we are going to face if we want to verbally acknowledge that there are some things that God says are wrong, some lifestyles, some behaviors that God says are wrong, and there are some things that God has commanded that are right and he has commanded us to pursue the things that are right and to put off the things that are wrong. And as believers, that's why we live the way that we live. But as believers, I just give you a warning, and you probably already know that it does marginalize us. It does distinguish us from the world around us because we are more and more becoming different and we are becoming set apart. And that's what the word holy means, is to be set apart. Now, we're not just being set apart for any old reason. We're being set apart because we're becoming more like God and less like the crooked and perverse generation. Now, I'm not trying to speak in such a way that would make us, I'm not trying to say that we are better than anybody because we all know that we are sinners. We have all come from that place that I just read about in Romans chapter 1. That was a description of our identity. We were disobedient to parents and unloving and all those unthings that he said in there. That was our identity. That's who we are. And except for the grace of God, we would still be there. So we praise the Lord for his mercy. And because he has paid the price for all of that, why would we go on loving it if our citizenship is no longer there? Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. We're no longer children of the devil. We're children of God. Why would we go on doing the deeds of the devil when he's made us children of the Father? And he's compelled us to pursue those things. So he says... You are to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom, here's, the other, here's another reason that it's really important, we appear as lights to this crooked and perverse generation. And these two words there, it means, he's, to appear means to shine and lights means luminaries. We shine as luminaries. We are lights that, that, uh, that illuminate the darkened lives of the people that live around us, the people that don't have a conscience for what is right and wrong. Our presence in their life gives light to what is right and wrong. We expose what is wrong and they hate that, but we also expose what is right and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is hope for their salvation because we are illuminating 
them to Jesus. We are showing them Christ by being blameless and innocent and proving ourselves to be children of God and above reproach in their presence. By setting ourselves apart and pursuing holiness in this life, we are becoming more like Christ. We are becoming more like citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are exposing people who are living in blindness and darkness to the truth and to the one thing that could give them hope and that could save their souls. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are representatives of Christ. We're reminded of Matthew chapter 5 where he tells us to, that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world and we are not to let that light be hidden in such a way that the darkened world around us can't see. God is shining into the darkness of these people's lives and he's using the church to do it. What a blessing to be that kind of an instrument in the hands of God. So he says, we are lights to a crooked and perverse generation. And lastly, I think it's really important to recognize that our conduct and our attitude towards the work of God that he's called us to matters because we are holding fast the word of life. He says, he says here, you appear as lights of the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Paul says, I would love to know that all my work of preaching the gospel to you was not in vain. That when I get to glory, that I am going to see you there and the fruit of salvation in your life and see that the lives that you lived were to the glory of God, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted, that was going to give him great joy to know that the work that God started in you was brought to completion. But he said, it's going to be because you have held fast the word of life. We appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That's what helps us truly stand apart. We're not just simply different because we've come up with a better financial plan than those people who have are living in poverty or because we've come up with a new uh, a bet we found a better self-help book that's given us a few life hacks so that we can have it a little bit easier than other people and we just seem to have it all figured out on our twitter pages and our facebook pages we put all the shiny images up to make us look like we got life pretty well wired I don't know what your problem is, but we got it figured out. But that's not the kind of distinction that the Lord is creating in us. What creates the distinction is that we are being held by the word of life and we are holding on to the word of life. It is because of the word of God that we have been enlightened to the truth of Jesus Christ. And it is the word of God that is going to enlighten those around us that are living in darkness. And it's the word of life that we live by. This is what holds us together. And if we're going to grow in Christ, if we're going to grow in obedience, if we are going to see ourselves being conformed to the image of Christ, then we need the word of life. We need the word of God. This is the revelation of God. It is, it is an invisible God who has made himself visible. It's a God who, who eternally exists that has made himself known. And in the reading of his word, the Spirit of God uses that to transform us by the renewing of our minds. That's what he says in Romans chapter 12. He uses the word of God to create faith. By faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need the word of life and we hold on to it. And that is what sets us apart. When people ask us, why is it that you do what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? When people do give you a hard time because you believe something's wrong and that doesn't make sense anymore. The culture has fully accepted something that we just can't accept because we, we believe differently. And when, when they ask you or when they give you a hard time about it, you're not going to waver in your belief. You're not going to question and say, well, that's just what I was taught since I was a kid, so I've never really thought about it. You're not going to say, I don't know, maybe I should rethink that. You're going to say, I'm holding on to the word of life. 
The Word of God has shown me what is right and what is wrong, and that's what determines what I believe, and that's what determines what I know is right and what is wrong, because God has revealed to me who He is and what, um, what He loves and what He hates, what is right and what is wrong. Now, I'd just like to add to this, you know, just kind of come back to this, this point. I think that still, you know, how is it that doing all things without grumbling or complaining um, creates this kind of effect in the world around us? And, you know, I was reminded of Matthew 15, 18, where Jesus said that uh, out, basically out of the mouth comes the proceeds of the heart. You know, what, it gives evidence to what's going on on the inside. The things that are being produced in our behavior and the things that are being produced in our words, uh, the conclusions and the doubts that we have in our minds give evidence to what's going on in the heart. And Paul's saying, listen, when those things are, when, when grumbling and murmuring and complaining is being poured out of your life, it will directly affect the church and it will directly affect your testimony in the world as lights of the world. Your lights of the world. You can't be a light and hope if you're always going about grumbling and complaining. It's going to directly affect your joy, and joy is a theme in this whole passage. In fact, he continues the thought and lands on joy. We just don't have time to get there this morning. But I will say this, too, in, in addition to that, because I believe all of us have difficulty, and all of us need to express confess at times, even to brothers and sisters in Christ, our doubts, our fears, our anxieties, our difficulties, sometimes our anger, things that we might feel like complaining about, we might need to confess those to a brother or sister because we're seeking help, we're seeking counsel, we're seeking the gospel from the faith in our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we need to confess those things to the Lord we cry out to him in our prayers, and we, and, we, and we cry in our prayers, sometimes complaining. And I, and I see example of that in David. If you read enough of David's Psalms, you're going to see him express his, the, the difficulty that his heart has with some of the things he was enduring. Job, when you look at Job, he directly complained to the Lord. It didn't mean God didn't rebuke him for it. But he complained to the Lord, and he, and he questioned things. And I think there's a time and a place for that so that we can receive counsel from the Lord, so that we can be reminded of what we believe in, so that the Spirit of God can help us. I don't think it's healthy to go about denying that you have doubt or that you have trouble in your heart with things that are going on or even with the will of God. Don't suppress that and pretend like it doesn't exist. If it does, voice it to the Lord, confess it, and seek his counsel on those things. Let him counsel you in his spirit. Even draw near to a brother or sister in Christ and let them help you through some of the difficulties that you have because your brothers and sisters are going to bring you back to the gospel and share with you the hope that you have in Jesus. Yes, you have those difficulties, but there's, I think there's a difference in that and just always going about finding fault in everything grumbling and murmuring and finding a reason to dispute and doubt everything that the Lord's called us to do together as a church or you to do individually or the things that you're doing out in the world. It's going to poison your demeanor in such a way that you being a light to the world is not true. That you have essentially taken that light of Christ and covered it up with your despair and caused the testimony that the Lord wants to shine through you to be veiled. And I believe the Lord's called us to be cautious about allowing our difficulties in life to turn into a spirit of murmuring and grumbling and doubting all the time. And like I said at the beginning, I think sometimes it comes down to us simply having a really difficult time with God's will. And we just don't like what he's decided that he wants for our lives. Um, so I, I want to be careful in inviting you to pray through these things. 
because I would like to invite you seriously to pray about your sanctification, that the Lord would lead you in righteousness, that the Lord would lead you to see where you've sinned, repent of those sins, and he would lead you in righteousness, that, that if there is a spirit of grumbling and complaining and discontentment with where God has you, confess it and ask the Lord to help you. But I also would like to be cautious and just say that I also realize that being human and If any of you are like me, um, the sins of the flesh or the difficulties of the world just weigh heavy on your heart. And sometimes one beating after another, day after day, gets to you. Gets to you. And it is okay to voice those things to the Lord and not feel like you're sinning. Um, And if there is sin, you're not going to cause more sin by confessing it to the Lord. You're going to bring it to the Lord and find grace and find forgiveness and find help. And I feel like a lot of times the things that would cause us to grumble and complain become anxiety. They become depression. And sometimes it's because maybe we feel like we're going to be a bad Christian if we let people know about it. And so we keep it to ourselves. Or we feel like we're going to be judged as somebody who doesn't have faith. But we know you do have faith. We just know you're going through a hard time. And I think that's where we as a church, going back to what Paul said in the beginning of verse chapter 2, there has to be a consolation of love, a fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion. And we come to each other, counseling each other through the difficulties of life. I'd like to invite you to pray through those things this morning, to pray that the Lord would continue that work of sanctification in your life. And I'd just like to land on this too. We, we have hope, and I'd invite you to rejoice that Jesus Christ, by the power of his blood on the cross, has accomplished your blamelessness before God. Even if you struggle with sin today, and you're going to continue to seek to repent of those things, before the Lord, you are blameless and holy. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just invite you to rejoice in that as a believer Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.